Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, challenges, and victories in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Good morning, everyone. This is another episode of uh, Care Captains. Today, I'm delighted to have on the show Jennifer Kane Berkmos. Jennifer, good morning. How are you today? Hi, good morning, Norbert. I'm doing great. I'm exceptionally happy to be able to talk with you, my old colleague and friend. Absolutely. And uh, it's so great to reconnect. You know, for us, I think one topic is going to be today talking on TEDx talking about improv comedy. But before we are going there, I love your career trajectory that you started at WHO, you went to the industry, several companies after you moved to consulting and you started your own company. So maybe you can guide us through that. How did you start at WHO, Jennifer? Ah, wow. We'll go back to ancient history. I'm happy to talk about that. Rather than um, go through the history of where I worked when, maybe what I would say is, I think even if I could get in my own time machine and talk to my younger self, I think that younger self and the self today agrees that she is seeking impact. Um, And so accordingly, I would say that this career that I've had, again, you said, as you said, starting with WHO, World Bank and WHO, as well as working in the pharma industry, it was always finding a way to seek impact. And I think as I got older and I got more mature in my career, it was also not only seeking impact, it was also seeking what can I learn for the next stage that I want to be in. So I think I can frame it like that. So I was very fortunate, blessings in every way to have been in the right place at the right time, working the right way, connecting in the right rooms to be able to have landed some really interesting roles early on in my career with WHO and World Bank. Um, And again, at that time, that person who was me was really looking for how do I find a way to use my talents, my skills, my education to create the best impact for people, patients, healthcare systems for that matter. And so that was a wonderful experience. I was so lucky to be able to do that, both in North America, in Latin America, as well as in in the region Europe WHO office. So it was really exceptional. I spent about seven years doing that work in WHO. And during that time, you know, it was really interesting learning how to speak in the world of impact for investing towards a social goal and a healthcare system goal versus other investments that a public institution may choose to make, i.e., you know, do you invest in roads or military or health? And what you and I both know through our careers in health and healthcare systems is that, you know, health is wealth. And so investing in health has a long-term macroeconomic impact on a society, which was really exciting to be at the cutting edge of researching those trends and helping governments that were trying to make some of those challenging decisions, help them make those which would have the most impact for their citizens when they were seeking to create public health policies and public health investments in their healthcare system. Also, along the way, seeking some education, I picked up MBA. And after that, I decided to make a transition from that world of, let's say, public policy into the world of commercial, in the world of pharma. And what I discovered was 
it was really interesting making a transition like that, going from public health, public policy, public affairs, et cetera, in a multilateral institution like the United Nations into the private sector where I became effectively an active stakeholder. I think when you work in the world of policy and WHO, you are advising governments, which is really exciting, but you still don't truly have skin in the game. You can provide advice. You can provide analysis. What I've all often likened it to is if you're really hungry and you're in Greece and you go to a, and you go to a restaurant and you say, I'm just absolutely starving. Please feed me. And waiter hands you a menu in Greek and says, go ahead. You have every possible option you might like. But if you can't read the language that's on the paper, a lot of that advice becomes challenging because you don't know how to you don't know how to interpret it and know, or how to make it meaningful for yourself. And I found that the transition into pharma actually was that for me, because then I started understanding, all right, what are the mutual goals that we have? What are, the, what are your population goals? What are your public health goals? Maybe disease-specific goals. What are your industrial goals as well in terms of employment policy and industry and innovation? And we were able to come up with access agreements that really fit the government that we were serving, as well as the patients and populations that they were serving. So I found that to be a very, really fascinating transition. And again, one of great impact where I became an active stakeholder as a part of the, the game. Did you have that experience too when you were moving into pharma? Oh, yes, absolutely. I did. And I like the fact that you already bring up this uh, restaurant analogy. It's so descriptive. And um, also when you said that you come over from the policy to the one of the key stakeholders, I was just wondering that did you intentionally pick pricing, reimbursement, market access, external affairs, or it was rather a coincidence? So how did you end up working in access, Jennifer? Okay, so excellent question. And I think merge it was a great merger of my intent, again, my, you know, my massively transformed a purpose of how do I help people, patients, healthcare systems do better, live better. It was continuing in that purpose that I had. It was the purpose never changed. No matter which job I took as a tool to enact that purpose, it was always the same purpose. So that was easy. And I think coming from the world of WHO, I understood the language of policy. And at the time, when I made the first leap into pharma, I was working for J&J or Janssen Pharmaceutica and at the EMEA level. And they needed coaching with was learning how to speak the language of policymakers so that they could start in sort of early days of market access and applying the tools of health economics to tell the story of how will an innovation, once you put it in a healthcare system, obviously transform the life of a patient in terms of clinical outcomes? And also, how do you transform the healthcare system when, when you bring an innovative agent into, into clinical practice? How does that defer cost? How does that change the way the patient flows through the healthcare system? And I think that having come, especially from the healthcare systems unit inside WHO, it was really I mean, easy is not probably the word, but it was a very smooth transition because I, I knew the language of how to adapt that those innovative tools from pharma into a healthcare systems language. So I think that really went smoothly. And so it was a very obvious choice. Also the geography, because I'd been working so very much 
with WHO Europe in the accession countries during the accession process, you know, working together with ministries of finance and ministries of health to help them adapt their legislation and their healthcare systems into the accession requirements to join the European Union. So I had just come out of that. And so moving from that into that dialogue with pharma was actually a very smooth transition. Love the fact that you already mentioned the several stakeholders who you connected with, who you engaged with. And I think in, in one of the roles, you were also in charge with community engagement and, and patient access. Can I assume that here you were also more in charge of talking and engaging with patient advocacy groups, maybe be much closer to the patient? How was that role different maybe than the other corporate roles, if at all? Uh-huh. So community engagement and patient engagement was for me very much a return to the roots that I'd had ever since being a child. And what I mean by that is it's really, it's beautiful when you're able to say, oh, my whole life I dreamed of this or my whole life I did this. And I was able to apply, you know, the the life learning of working in patient advocacy into my professional career. And what I mean by that is, you know, the world of patient access inherently is patient advocacy. And as I advanced in my career and I took on larger roles going from maybe managing a subregion to a region to a global access, often those roles all come together. For example, you have your health economics, you have your access, you have your pricing, you have your real world evidence, and you have your patient advocacy. And I was very fortunate enough to do that when I worked for a company called Swedish Orphan Biovitrum or Sobi, which is a rare disease company. And that's just like the magnum opus of bringing all of those aspects together where you look at the, you know, designing clinical trials all the way through perhaps even end of your patent life. How are you going to bring the patient voice in terms of creating evidence in the clinical trial design, also through ruled evidence, telling the story of the impact that you make on a healthcare system, as well as clinical practice, as well as individual patient lives. And then how do you take that evidence base and then be an advocate together with patients for that? I mentioned that I had kind of grown up in this world. I was, I don't think, I don't think you know this, Norbert, but I grew up in a family that is very strongly, uh, we have a history of advocating for patients. My mother had been the chair of the American Diabetes Association, which was a wonderful experience. She had, you know, raised millions and millions of dollars for research in their research foundation. And when she joined the head of that, it was diabetes advocacy was something that was ingrained in our family. And she actually worked with Novo Nordisk and American Diabetes Association and the United Nations to create World Diabetes Day. So to create the UN, the actual UN resolution that created, founded Diabetes World Diabetes Day, which is in November. And so having that, you know, a family dinner for us wasn't just, hey, how was your day? It was, what are you doing for patients? How are you educating patients? How, you know, oh, there's a story I really want to tell on here's a community education project that we can launch to raise money for patients and for community engagement, to teach, to, you know, put the tools in the hands of patients so they can be the pilots of their own disease and et cetera, and the families. So that was something that was very much ingrained in me as a person. So to actually bring that into my professional life was also a natural flow, but also such an honor to, to, I think, bring that legacy of advocacy into my professional life. I also have two incredible siblings who are also deeply ingrained in their own passion projects, in their own professional pursuits, 
in patient advocacy as well. Thanks for sharing this personal story with the audience. I think it really gives a nice insider information why these topics are so close to your heart. You left the industry, you went to consulting, and, and I think quite often in consulting, it's maybe also taking this external viewpoint, standing at the balcony and, and helping the clients to see the bigger picture. So how was that for you transitioning from the industry to consulting? Transitioning from industry into consulting was a fascinating one. And it's one that I had to keep reminding myself on a daily basis. What is my purpose? I am here because I'm here as a professional and in that, in that sense, a consultant to help our clients, members of the pharma industry, and also governments, for example, because we're advising governments as well on, let's say, policy reform, pharmaceutical pricing reform, taking up HTA policy in their own government, helping them create the biggest impact they can in terms of shortening the time to innovation efficiency for a healthcare system, and just greater impact for patients. So I think really continuing to remember that because it's very easy to get bogged down in the detail of the daily operations, the daily business that you do, and the projects to get down in the detail, the analysis, really translate that back into, hey, as a client, you've brought me in because either it's a challenge that you have, you need external help to help noodle through these options, or you need extra sets of hands to help you. So I always felt like I would always infuse that idea back into my teams as a consultant to say, you know, sure, we have this project, which is very clear in front of us, which might be an analysis project, which might be an efficiency, might be a go-to-market project, for example, might be describing and consulting on the endpoints from a market access perspective in a clinical trial program, we're still here because that client wants to reach patients faster. So I still, I still feel like that was something that I personally brought and would infuse into my teams, even in consulting. And I think it made a big difference for our clients because it can continue to help them deliver their own mission, which is compress the time to innovative access for patients. I love this perspective. It gives me also some new ideas that how I can approach my job. Thank you for that, Jennifer. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, also looking at your profile, what uh, I also treasure a lot that you are teaching in various institutions, I think at INSEAD, London School of Economics in Switzerland, ETH. How did this passion for teaching uh, come to you? The passion for teaching, again, is I know something. How can I help you grow with what I know? I've lived a life. I've lived a professional experience. I've been on this professional journey. And how can I take the synthesis of that into an environment of learning? INSEAD is probably the longest engagement of all those that I've had. And it's been fascinating for me because the way that I looked at it was, again, the people that we meet on our journeys helping us so much. It happened to be that was one of my own personal professors in INSEAD, Loic Sadole, for those of you who know him at INSEAD, who is extremely incredible. He invited me back in the Novartis days, actually, he invited me to come and teach about global health and pharmaceuticals and emerging markets. And the way that I looked at this opportunity was, you know, INSEAD, number one international business school in the world, it's one of the top recruitment homes for the big consulting firms. And I would walk into those classrooms and say, if this is the only class or only discussion that you ever have about healthcare, healthcare systems, pharmaceutical industry, or 
global health, for example, let me please give you some guidance on how to do that job well, if you're going to be a future consultant yourself. And some of those people, sure, they entered industry themselves, but it was to helping them expose them to the risks associated with developing a pharmaceutical product and why so often those products are developed and studied in the Western white world. And for them to understand where could biases be in those development plans and how might they, as a part of their consulting journeys themselves, actually help their future clients to either have a stronger voice in global health, to potentially correct some of that bias, make bridges into, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa around unlocking potential for technology transfer, for studying molecules in um, in, in populations that don't always have their biodiversity captured. And so we really ingrain that and we give them active case studies and thinking about how might you correct a study for bias? How might you correct a launch plan for bias? How might you compress the time between launch in a primary market like US, Germany, Japan, for example, and get into the emerging markets quicker? And what are some social business models that you could potentially try? How might you actually make that scalable in other countries? So that was really exciting to be able to do that and to at least give them a taste of what could be coming in their way. And my hope was that I've been doing that now for eight years. My hope would be that maybe some of these students that I had who are now working in a McKinsey, maybe your BCG, for example, and maybe they're thrust into an environment with pharma or they're looking at which market they're advising company on their launch sequence, for example, and how do you accelerate access into emerging markets? Or how do you accelerate clinical trial uptake or local manufacturing in emerging markets and really LDCs? How might they use that tool that I taught them way back when to then apply that now? Because honestly, they probably didn't get a lot of exposure to that, those tools and tactics along the way. So that was my hope. And again, similar in in LSC is that I was brought in as an industry expert and as an executive who was walking that walk where many of those students were learning, how does this work on paper? How does this work in theory? How How do these models work in, let's say, a modeling perspective? How does that apply actually in a corporation? What I did in ETH is actually quite different, and it's related to the improv work that you mentioned around the TED Talks and the improv. So we could make a shift that way if you want to. I would love to definitely, please, yes, uh, go into the TEDx and to the improv uh, comedy. When I was in Novartis, I was bitten by something that has stuck with me for the last 13 years. And that is that I was exposed to improv comedy. I loved it as just a fun thing to do, as maybe doing a little bit of acting with it uh, and just playing with it as a tool. And at the time, Novartis, I was doing this thing called Lunch and Laugh, where I bring together people together and we would just do improv jams. What I realized was as a small micro experiment is the people that were doing this became very cohesive together as if, as if we could read each other's minds, like the kind of brain connection was next level. And also the level of creativity that we would feel and focus and kind of being in the zone after we would have these lunch and laugh sessions, we'd go back and sit in our, you know, our cubby holes or in our open plan and work and create some really interesting things. And the group of people that did that, we actually created a business model for Novartis for emerging markets. And I think during that time, I realized 
wow, this is really interesting is that I can use these tools from a place I'd never would have expected. Like I can use the tools of improv theater, improvisational theater, improv comedy to ideate things, to create cohesion, to build on listening communication skills, to, I mean, this is pre-agility, but really, truly, this was agile building of things uh, in our in our way of work. From there, you know, fast forward through the years, COVID for me was a giant gift, actually, because as everyone was shutting down and everyone had to be isolated, and all of a sudden, these major institutions, educational institutions, were offering free online school or, you know, finding ways to link I turned my light on and said, oh my gosh, there's a comedy school I've always dreamed of my entire life of studying at. And between Switzerland and Chicago or Toronto, I was never going to be able to make that link. And I actually went through their program because they offered it virtually during COVID. So I went through this professional improvisational school and went through what they call conservatory. The school is called Second City, if you've ever heard of it. If you know the school, the the U.S. television called Saturday Night Live, a lot of the talent comes from there. So famous people you might know, like Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, all those forces in in comedy that come from North America came from this school. And I was really fortunate to be able to use that. That's where TEDx grabbed me and said, hey, let's talk about this. And we talked, we created a couple talks for TEDx about how you can use improv comedy as a way of harnessing leadership, bridging conflict, creating connections amongst people, especially in a, in a time of COVID when we were all at a distance trying something different and, and also really un- unleashing creativity in the world of ideation. So that's actually what I was teaching at ETH. I was teaching PhD candidates how to kind of get through their own imposter syndrome, get out of their way, get out of their head, and actually how to manage a a room when you have your perfect PhD or your perfect pitch prepared. And the moment that your professor panel or your, if you're going do this presentation in front of a pitching organization, like a your private equity firm, as soon as they start asking questions, it's going to divert you from the plan you have. So everyone's an improviser in that sense, because you're making something from nothing and you're having to deal with disruptions along the way. So I was teaching that to students at at the ETH. So for those of you who don't know, it's like the MIT of Switzerland, bringing some great innovative talent into the market in the PhD program and, and also their entrepreneurial program. So that's how all that started. And I'm so grateful that I have that now as a tool in my toolbox because it's part of, I think what defines me as a leader, it defines me as an innovator and as an entrepreneur now as well that I've started my own company. And you can bet for sure on a daily basis in our company, which is called Viva Valet, we are utilizing these tools of improv in management, in ideation, in the way that we train our service providers, the way that we interact with our customers. It's been one of the life's great maybe accidents along the way, or I don't know, like for those, you know, I'm sure you've, I'm sure Norbert, you've listened to this one of, I think it was a Stanford graduation speech that Steve Jobs spoke of where he says, you know, stay hungry 
and also pursue your hobbies and pursue your passions. And even if it has nothing to do with your future of work. So for him, it was beautiful writing and how that then translated into, or I guess calligraphy. He was auditing classes in calligraphy and how that then translated into his passion for creating beautiful, accessible fonts through the Macintosh. And I find my analog of that in my own personal life is I'm so grateful that I decided to have fun with something which was called improv comedy. And then I became more and more ingrained in how I define how I live, this idea of yes and. It's not yes, but it's not yes, no, it's yes and how do we keep building and building and building and how that really defined how I lead and how it's really ingrained in the company that I've co-founded with my founder. Such an innovative idea. I haven't even uh, thought of that combining improv comedy and business together. And maybe this is something what we can go more in depth. Maybe you have a good example for us. How do you apply this at Viva Valet in your company? Can you you give us uh, or give the audience an example that how these two concepts could come together in a idea or maybe in a new service offering or maybe if you want you can also a little bit uh, explain how the lunch and laugh worked in the past Ah, lunch and laugh sure actually i'm going to do another lunch and laugh i've just been this morning i was i booked a lunch and laugh with a with a company give you the 30 second overview of the rules of improv and how that we therefore apply that into business so they're very easy and you know just like switzerland we love our rules right so in, in improv, even rules are important. You can't just open water, swim on everything. You have things that are confined in a box. So the first rule is yes and. So you always, whenever someone offers you something in terms on the stage, you say, yes, you agree, and you keep building on it. So in the world of work, yes and is if you're brainstorming, if you're having a conversation, if you say yes, but automatically that cuts off the energy and the creativity and the will to co-create. Whereas if you say yes, and you keep building with your co-creators, be that your board, be that your team, be that your customers. So yes, and number one, number two is listen. So we learn pretty well in all of our walks of life, in our companies, in our communities, in our families, is we're all kind of garbage at listening. And very often listening becomes the opportunity that I wait for you to talk so that I can talk again. And in improv, you absolutely cannot do that because you co-create everything live on a stage. Now, if you apply that into the world of work, you know, how many times, how many meetings are wasted or how much time in meetings are wasted because we don't properly listen to each other. So we will do with our, in our company is that we will work with our suppliers and also our customers and our team as well to work on active listening games that we use in improv. It's finding a way to offer the hospitality of the mind to demonstrate I'm listening to you. And then you're not thinking while someone else is talking, you're actually deeply listening. The other is serve. So it's this idea of service and service means that if I'm on stage with you, I'm here to make you look really good. I'm here to make my team look really good. So the role of the leader isn't to be a star. The role of the leader is to enable and unlock the the potential and the magic in the team. So that in that act of service, it's making sure that everyone is there to make everyone else look really, really good. And then lastly, it's fail with joy. So it's to say that sometimes things don't work out. And while you're doing it, you know it's crashing and burning. You just sell it the most you can until it ends. So that that's, you know, in a nutshell, those are the rules of improv, and that's some of the way we apply it. 
something I have really loved in coaching my own team members if they have perhaps a fear of, you know, imposter syndrome is the low hanging fruit on most of this, you know, trying to develop executive presence, trying to overcome imposter syndrome. We use a tool called character baseball and in that we give someone, it's just a funny name for for the game, but we say like, Norbert, I'm going to give you a character and your character has three qualities. It has, so for example, your, your obsession or your profession is that you're a stamp collector, for example. And then you have a quality of your voice. Maybe it's really low voice, for example. And then you might have a physical characteristic that you do. So we play this and it's funny and we make people do a monologue in that character. And we'll say, oh, you know, make this character. And then we say, if this is true about this character, what else is true about their life? So we can make up things about what do they eat for breakfast? You know, what was their childhood like? Maybe what, who's going to be at their funeral? So we can kind of Look at the whole person's life from these three pieces of information. But then you could say, okay, this was fun. And now let's apply this in our business world. What are we lacking? In this moment, we're about to go into a pitch meeting with investors. We need to be the world's leading experts on aging. We need to have a voice that is very calm, that is very relaxed, that is very assertive. Our physicality needs to be the most perfect posture you can imagine. Now you put those three things together and how you deliver your pitch and you're actually a different character in the moment and it helps you overcome any fears that you may have. So we use that a lot and I'm teaching that often to my students. So what I didn't mention is in Basel, you know, one of my great ambitions was to eventually be involved in local theater here in Basel to be able to perform. And, you know, I waited and waited and waited. We didn't have an English speaking improv community at all. So of course I had to build it. So taught over 200 students in a theater program here in Basel. We perform monthly and we also do corporate events and things like this. So these, these are some of the tools that we use all the time in my private company, but also in, in, in the world of work here in Basel and both, both be it for people who want to do be performers, but also people who are never going to be performers, but maybe they've read a Harvard business review and said, wow, improv comedy is a really interesting tool for leadership and overcoming your fears to, of public speaking. I would love to sign up to one of your classes, but probably I would just need to get some uh, brevity to do that. Speaking of which, what did your students say at ETH when you did this class? The students at ETH, first of all, they're willing, they were willing to try anything new. So they really enjoyed it. And I think because we go in with two doorways, we go in with the comedy doorway, which is let's have fun and let's enjoy. I mean, if you're laughing and having a good time, you're learning, you're more primed for learning. And then when we're able to make that tweak to say, okay, let's move from comedy into how you would use this tool in your pitch or in your PhD thesis, I think immediately they got it. And there were several of my students who are also pitching there at the same time as doing their PhD thesis defense. They're also pitching private companies and doing funding rounds for their own entrepreneurial ventures. And so they immediately saw it and they would come back and say, all right, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. How do I apply this? I think that's one example. And then also just in the wild, the courses in the theater company, I've had students of mine who've come back to me to say, who are, for example, consultants to say, we had a really difficult client. We used this exercise that we did in class. And they said, you know, we got, we got asked back. We got asked back to pitch and actually we won the pitch. And normally we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to even stay in the room and have a conversation. 
And, and the client said, we don't understand what it is, but something's different about you. We feel like you're listening to us on a new level and therefore we want to work with you. So think about the way that business has transformed as a result of using these tools. And it's quite impressive. It is. I, I, I love it. You sold, sold the concept to me. So count me in for the next uh, session. I had a look at your new venture, Viva Valet. And I think the value proposition is that you offer services, home services for older adults. So can I imagine this as a, as a Craigslist for senior citizens? So what exactly you would do in Viva Valet, Jennifer? So excellent question. Viva Valet, if you imagine the world of Expedia, Booking.com, these consolidator websites that if you were going to plan a, a holiday that you might use. So imagine a world before they existed, you would have to look at maybe five different airlines and 10 different hotels, and then maybe looking at different car rental companies, et cetera. And now you just go to one of those consolidator sites and you say, oh, here's the flight. All the options have been brought to me. All the hotel options have been brought to me, et cetera. This is what we aim to do also with Viva Valet in the world of home care. And we are also providing home care to seniors who wish to live at home longer. You clearly don't need to be reminded of the absolute demographic bubble that we are about to experience in, in the world of octogenarians that's coming. The dependency ratio, which in 1980 was nine to one. So nine people that were living, working, supporting an older person by 2030, that becomes three to one and two to one by 2040. And so we have a huge gap in resources available in terms of human resources and family resources associated with care to be given to support olders to live at home. We also know that this is an, a population that tends to have a bit more resources than former older populations. And they. we also know that 76% of them want to stay at home. They do not wish to live in senior living, maybe even independent living. They wish to live where they've lived in their family home. At the same time, we have people like you and me who've moved away from their families. We've moved out of country, we've moved across country or out of country, but we still have the same burden to care for our aging parents. And so we need to be able to offer support from a distance. And that's where this consolidation, like you said, Craigslist kind of thing, like I say, booking.com consolidation comes in that let's say your parent has a crisis, has a hip fracture, has an emergency surgery. You may, or I may fly the 12 hours or the five hours or take the six hour drive back home to care for our parent for a given period of time. And we can work remotely for a given period of time, but that's not sustainable because we have to return to our own families, wherever they are. And so we have to be able to organize care for our older from a distance. And the number one concern for caregivers, adult children caregivers, as well as for the olders themselves is trust. And so what we've done is in order to be a company that is in our platform, you had to go through seven different steps of vetting in order to get through. That means, you know, the external vetting, we have to do interviews, they do coursework, they have to pass tests, we have to pass background checks, criminal background checks. We have to also do test rounds for them. And then they also have to be proving that they can use a feedback loop, which allows the younger person, the other, to receive the feedback on how their older is doing. So this is this continuous care loop. So again, 
we offer the care that you can't give and you wish you could give if you were living next door. Coming back to the original thing we spoke about in our talk today, this is one of my life's great purposes, is that this is really helping people, patients, many of them are potential patients, or they are already patients, families, healthcare systems, live in a better way. We're enabling, we're honoring the life lived of olders, revering them for the experience and life levels lived effectively. We are providing support for the youngers, the adult children who are sandwiched often between caregiving and raising children and caregiving for their olders, helping the older live the life of purpose independently, helping the younger get back to doing the things that they need to do and taking away the burden of, of worry. And then the service providers we have are actually local companies. We don't want to take business away from anyone. So we're not hiring in our own staff to do this independently. We're using our own independent contractors that we vetted and tested and trained. And so we are really proud that we're also building up local businesses where they are, directing the marketing resources towards their company, directing, giving them additional training, providing them with our own proprietary software that allows them to do all their booking and all their feedback, which they hadn't done before and all their own and their CRM system that they benefit from, from us. So it's really just this act of love for our olders, for our communities, and for very often working women who are saddled and sandwiched between raising children, running their career, and also caregiving for their older adults. And this, I think, as you phrase it, active love definitely comes through. Your your passion is there. Your drive is there. And I see that you are fully behind. You moved away a little bit from healthcare. Definitely, there is an aspect of health in this new offering of Viva Valet. How, how is that little bit leaving healthcare behind and uh, jumping into this uh, new territory, Jennifer? It's a very interesting question to say that I left healthcare. Because I believe I went into health promotion very much because we are not providing healthcare services, but we're providing all the life services that enable you to live at home independently. And it's truly the gap in a healthcare system, which is we might have mastered how to do uh, community care. We might have mastered how to do primary, secondary, tertiary care, physical therapy, et cetera. What we're, get, what we're lacking is this gap in how to enable independent living on your own. And so as a result, I really still feel like I'm a part of healthcare, even though I'm, I'm supporting it, even though I'm not actively delivering healthcare. We have some software that we're going to be releasing very soon, which is, you will recognize it's a gamified SF36. And we're using that as a way to track prospective data on not disease management, but overall health performance as you would in a normal PRO instrument. And that's really exciting because we're not asking what's wrong with you. We're just saying, how are you living? How is the life going? And again, you can measure that in a, this gamified PRO instrument. I love it. And uh, maybe you made a phrase here, which is, I think, very nicely puts uh, health in a different context, life services, and you provide everything to make sure that elderly person can stay at home, can live there and can have uh, these uh, support services, home services. Working with many generations in your new business, Viva Valet, you are serving... Uh, 70 plus population as a lecturer, probably you are more exposed uh, to young uh, students. 
How is that working with many, many generations in your daily work? Well, part of that is I am one of these actors in those multiple generations. I am that adult child and I do have children of my own. <laughs> so I know that burden and I do connect directly with the older themselves. My, I'm the co-founder. My founder is actually Marion Perina, and she's based out of Singapore, actually. She has a daily connection to olders, which is quite profound and continues to keep us very much focused on the experience of olders living. I also think in the formation of this company, which made us, I think, hardwired into living the experience of the olders and the youngers, is that we, instead of going saying, oh, we've got this great tech idea, because effectively we're a tech company and delivering physical services, a little like Tesla is a tech company that sells cars. So before we designed any code, we actually did two months of ethnography. We put cameras in people's homes. We did ethnographic research to really understand how are you living as an older? How are you interacting with your adult children? What would you like your adult children to do? What would you like them not to do? So we, we are constantly infused with that Though many of those people from our original ethnography have helped us to design the tech themselves. So they have been a part of designing our UI UX experience, designing our apps, designing our websites. To, to really, you know, be a younger myself, having a lot of olders around me to help me, to help guide me. We have a lot of advisors who are both from the tech world, from Google, from Visa, from Uber Eats as well, have been advising us as well as gerontologists, those who are examining crimes against olders themselves. So that's been really interesting to help us with our ethics and ensure that everything is compliant with, especially with HIPAA rules in the US. We have two customers, really, the adult children who buy this for their for their aging parents, and we have the older themselves. And we know that as time goes by, clearly have another customer, which is in the world of market access that you and I know very well, the payer. And so that's the next move is that we do make this a reimbursable service inside the United States. So that that's really, really interesting. That's also why we're so passionate about having the data behind us, the prospective data behind us. I see the big picture behind it. And clearly you put a lot of thinking into this very nice business idea. I wish uh, you good luck with it. And maybe final question, what message you would give to the newer generation? What tips and tricks did you discover during your career trajectory? The take-home message would be do not obsess about making the right choice for the next 10 years. Make the right choice for today. And that right choice is usually about, does the thing I'm about to do delight me, inspire me, fill me with purpose and passion? And is it something that I'm eager to learn? Because what we know that many of the roles that even you and I had, if you think about the roles that we've had over the last 20, 30 years, they didn't exist when we started our career. And so to continue to look at what do I seek to learn with every role that I have? What's my purpose? Hopefully that continues to drive you through. And how is this job that I'm about to do going to teach me something that helps me get closer to the purpose that I want to achieve and impact I want to have in the world that I'm living in? And I think chasing a title, chasing a level of status in a company, or actually even trying to chase 
um, the sense of comfort and security in a company is really false. And I would like younger listeners, if they're listening still, <laughs> realize you're rented. You're rented and you're renting as well. It's a mutual agreement. And so you might find that you are engaged in a company that really wants you to take on the role that you have as if you're an owner or as if you're having long-term ownership or being owned by that company, you're never owned, you are only rented. And so if you find that the position that you're in is not fulfilling the purpose and the impact that you wish to have in your life, and it's not teaching you something that you wish to learn and is getting you towards where you want to be, then you need to find a new place to be rented by, or you need to start your own venture. So that's what I have to say, Norbert. I hope that helps. It does. So wise. Jennifer, thank you very much for coming to Care Captains. It was great to have you sharing your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Norbert. Thank you. And good luck to you. This is a wonderful initiative. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Care Captains on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you next time.